Okay, Luke 24. Let's start in verse 13. Uh, hopefully all of you know that this is uh, one of the first appearances of Jesus after he rose from the dead on the actual day that he rose from the dead. Verse 13, And behold, two of them were going that very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they, they were conversing with each other about all these things which had taken place. And it came about that while they were conversing and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are these words that you're exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus the Nazarene who was a prophet mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to, to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were looking, or, I'm sorry, but we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, beside all this, it is the third day since these things happened, but also some woman among us amazed us when they were at the tomb early in the morning. It did not find his body. They came saying they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. You can read about that in John's gospel. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it exactly as the woman also had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Now, um, in the uh, in these passage in this passage, uh, Jesus uh, says a few things that are uh, pretty important. First of all. The ESV says that he interpreted to them all the things, all the scriptures of the things concerning himself. Whereas the NASB, uh, instead of interpreted, says explained. And uh, the New King James says expounded. But what he did is he uh, helped them understand that all the scriptures were about him. And so if you know uh, how Hebrews spoke of the scriptures in his day, sometimes they called the scriptures the law and the prophets. So when he's talking to these guys and he says, uh, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he's basically saying everything in the Old Testament scriptures, everything in what they called the scriptures at that time, because the New Testament had not been written yet, the 39 books that the rabbis uh, believed in and adhered to that we still use today, he's saying that all of them are about him. Secondly, uh, he's saying that they reveal that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer because 
the Israelites had fallen into kind of an idea that God's people would never suffer. It was kind of uh, very similar to today's prosperity gospel that, you know, you're just going to get blessings whether you obey or disobey. Uh, It's amazing to me how many people uh, call on God and call on God's blessings who have no uh, intention to know him, no intention to do his will, uh, no intention to uh, follow scripture or anything. And he's, he's making it clear that uh, the scriptures say something very different than what they expected. They did not have room for a Messiah that was going to suffer. They thought that the Messiah was going to be a descendant of David, the son of David, which he was, but that he was going to uh, lead a political revolution and overturn the Romans and restore the kingdom of David in the good times of blessing and prosperity and peace to Israel, and a, a, a Messiah that was going to set up his kingdom by suffering, they just had no room for in their minds. So it's, you know, it's possible, I guess what I'm saying is, it's possible to know the scriptures very well, to read them hundreds of times, and yet miss the point all the, of them altogether. So let's jump over to Luke 24, uh, a little bit further in the chapter, and I'm not going to read the whole section, but this is later that night when he appears to the disciples in the inner room, and I'm just going to focus on verse 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Next week, we're going to talk about a little concept called Tanakh, but... uh, Uh, that was the other way that the Hebrews referred to all the scriptures. Sometimes in in conversation they would say the Torah, sometimes they would, meaning the law of Moses or the, or the Pentateuch or the first five books of the Bible. And, but, but, but sometimes depending on the context, when they said Torah or the books of Moses, they meant the whole Testament. Sometimes when they meant the whole Testament, they would say the law of Moses and uh, the prophets. And they actually called the books we call the other historical books. We're going to talk about the major sections of the Bible next week. And uh, things like uh, Joshua through es- Esther, we call those the historical books. I call them the other historical books, and we'll talk about why next week. But the, the Jews of Jesus' day called most of those books the prophets. Uh, along with the books that we call the prophets. We're also in what they called the prophets. So, uh, and then the Psalms was, some, was a way they referred to all of the wisdom literature. And he's saying that everything in the, uh, once again, he's saying everything in all the Jewish scriptures, which we call the Old Testament, is about him. And then I love this. It says he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Uh, and, he, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would, could suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins. Again, they had no room in their theology for a, a Messiah that would suffer, die, and rise from the dead. Now, 
beginning with the, this event, Jesus had prophesied about this event and what would follow after by saying, I'm going to send to you apostles, prophets, righteous men. And uh, so what began to happen at this uh, was that at, they began to understand the, the, what we call the Old Testament scriptures. Again, they just called the scriptures uh, be, because the New Testament hadn't been written yet. But, uh, and I call, the, I call them the Hebrew or the Jewish scriptures. They, they uh, for the first time, began to understand them for what they really had always been intended to be, a progressive revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, and so from this event forward, they, along with their, their disciples that include people like John Mark, uh, who may or may not have been in the upper room there because he was the, the one that fled in, in Mark 16, and so he was a young man who was already traveling with them, even though he wasn't one of the 12 apostles. Uh, of course, later Luke joined them. Uh, Later, Jesus' brothers joined them, which included Jude and James. And, uh, of course, Paul calls himself one who's untimely born because uh, Jesus uh, appears to Paul in Acts chapter 9. And all of these men begin to come out of this revelation and begin to rethink their entire understanding of Scripture in light of the, of the idea that Jesus Christ is the central point of it all. So, it, you know, a lot, a lot of you are familiar with the idea of a paradigm shift where all of a sudden you looked at everything one way and all of a sudden you realize that was a wrong way to be looking at it and all of a sudden you look at it a completely new and different way. And this is what happen, starts happening in Luke 24. In Luke 24, they begin to understand that Genesis through Malachi needs to be rethought. They, need, they, they had large portions of it memorized. Paul, uh, like, would have had all of it memorized by the time he encountered Jesus on the road. In fact, he probably had all of it memorized about 15 years before he encountered Jesus on the road. Not, and, and the disciples would have at least had the first five books, the books of Moses, memorized and would have had hundreds, maybe probably a, a couple thousand other scriptures memorized. Yet now they're seeing that they have to in interpret it, start over from scratch, and, and do a whole new way. I got this right or no? Okay. So now... That gets us into a subject called hermeneutics, and hermeneutics is simply the study of how you interpret the Scripture. So something we say at Grace Christian Fellowship, what I, a dictum, something I think you should memorize, is the apostolic hermeneutic is both correct and Christocentric. So let's take, tear that apart for a minute. First of all, I want to re remind us that we have a concept in Grace Christian Fellowship called foundational articles. And back in that... Um, little bookshelf thing that's right behind Emily Furlow uh, is um, uh, 
some of the foundational articles, and in particular, one that John Weiss wrote, that we asked him to write, about the apostolic hermeneutic. And if so, I would encourage you to start there, but there's messages all through our podcast, just, and ask anybody who's kind of in the leadership or core group to point you to how to get started on this, but you need to learn how to read all of Scripture in a Christocentric fashion. So when I say the apostolic hermeneutic is both correct, that's not uh, some trite little thing. There, what we're, what's going on in, in, the, in the church out there today is there's a lot of paradigms on how to interpret the Scripture. And whether you know it or not, you've actually been influenced by those paradigms deeply, even if you don't know that you have. And that's actually tragic when you've been influenced by ways of looking at things and you're bringing assumptions to your reading when you don't know what the assumptions are. So when you, when you think, when you read, when you interpret anything, you start with a thing called assumptions or presuppositions. And those presuppositions can either be held consciously that is, you've examined them and you know what they are, or they can be held unconsciously. That means you haven't examined them, you don't know what they are, and you've just assumed they were true because the culture's going that direction. And that's actually what's happening today in evangelical Christianity, hook, line, and sinker. Uh, people are approaching the Scriptures with ideas. Yesterday I was sent a text question about uh, is something or else going to this or that going to happen in the future that was based on uh, there was a non-question because it, it doesn't even make sense if you know how to interpret the scripture. <laughs> it was like, how do I answer this question? It's not the right question. Because uh, uh, it assumed... Uh, a paradigm of scripture interpretation which the majority of evangelicals hold called dispensational premillennialism. But um, it's a completely modern idea that was introduced to the church in the 1800s that began to dominate the church by the 1890s and is held by probably 80 to 90% of evangelicals. Uh, I'm glad to say that the number is no longer 95%, which I probably would have had to say 10 or 15 years ago, because more and more people are kind of waking up to the fact that it doesn't work. It doesn't have anything to do with the Scriptures or reality. And so, um, when I say the apostolic hermeneutic is correct, what I mean is this. You, you, you know, you, a lot of people think, oh, what I just got to do, what we've got to convince people to do when we're trying to get people to grow in the Lord is get them to read their Bibles more. Guess what? That's not adequate enough. You can read your Bible lots of times if you're bringing the wrong assumptions to it and you'll get all the wrong ideas out of it and, if, and you'll be lost and deceived just as much as if you hadn't read your Bible. Now, there is a doctrine called the clarity of Scripture, and in some areas, if you're truly, your heart is toward God and so forth, you'll, 
get some clarity and some ideas and some of the big ideas, but, but you really do need to examine what your hermeneutics are. That is how you interpret the Scripture. Okay, so when uh, we talked about when people hold assumptions subconsciously, and I know some of this stuff is intellectual. If you're newer here, let me just tell you the experience of person after person who's come here. Person after person after person has come here said, I didn't understand what you were talking about the first year or two. Just had a talk with Jennifer Pett at uh, dinner last week about this subject. And so I kept listening and I got into uh, looking up stuff in scripture and biblical dictionaries and just plain dictionaries and so forth. Stephen Leopold had the same thing. He listened before I ever met Stephen. He had already listened to about 40 of our podcasts. And he said it take, took him two hours to listen to each 45-minute podcast of John or myself uh, because of how many times he had to pause it and look up the words. But there's, there's been a movement in the church for a long time, and it um, started in the 1800s, but it, became, it, it had different events that caused it to grow and grow and grow, and in the, in the 1970s, there was a big move, movement in, in terms of pastors' types books that pastors read called the church growth movement. And the church growth movement said the way to get a bigger church is to dumb everything down and to especially get rid of any of the t- tough, costly sayings of Jesus, like stuff about taking up your cross and repentance, you know, avoid those kinds of things. Conviction, you know, what, what the preachers preach about, sin, what'd he say? Oh, about he was again it. Uh, you know, <laughs> you know um, it's an old southern joke. Uh, so, uh, you know, what we've had for, for 150 years is this increasing tendency to lower the cost to reduce the message, to Gnosticize Christianity. That's one way we reduce it. We get rid of God's law, which is antinomianism. All this stuff probably doesn't make sense right now. Just get the bigger point, if you can, that reducing it all and reducing it all and reducing it all is not a solution. So what we, when there's all these different... so. When we talked about having assumptions that you're bringing to your life or to your reading, uh, you can bring it assumptions to science, you can bring it to business, you can bring assumptions to the store with you about, you know, whether, like for instance, for uh, the, all, all the American public bought into the idea that low fat must be better for you. <laughs> and that's what caused our obesity epidemic. It did. Because low fat meant high carbs, and if you want to fatten up a cow, guess what you feed them? Corn. <laughs> right? So, like, what you're, if you have the wrong assumptions, it, it really does matter. So, when you have the wrong assumptions subconsciously, it's called an axiom, or it's called a postulate. For instance, one of, like if you're from Europe or America today, if you're a Westerner, 
you have anti-supernatural presuppositions that uh, are very skeptical about things like Jesus rising from the dead and Jesus healing lepers and Jesus casting out demons with the word and Jesus still doing those kind of things whenever he wants today. And you, you uh, have been brainwashed in that from your youth up. So when we talk about the apostolic hermeneutic, all, it's as simple as this. We're talking about this. When you read the New Testament, every book was written by an apostle or a direct disciple of an apostle or Paul, who was, uh, as he says, an apostle untimely born. Because some of the um, qualifications for apostles is they had to have seen Jesus physically, literally, risen from the dead to be an apostle. They had to have miracles to test in their ministry on a regular basis. They had to have a pattern inside of them, a blueprint for what the community of God's people should be. And they had to know how to get Jesus out of every part of the, of the scriptures that had been written up till now. That is the, what we call the Old Testament scriptures today. So when we say the apostolic hermeneutic is correct, what we need to do is study how the apostles used the Old Testament in order to uh, write the New Testament. And the, the apostles and their disciples, Luke was a disciple of both Peter and Paul. And he wrote the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts. Mark was a disciple of both Peter and Paul. And at Peter's request, toward the end of Peter's life, most people believe that after he was already arrested by Nero and knew he was about to fulfill Jesus' prophecy of how he was going to die in the book of John, Peter asked Mark to write his memoirs of the Gospel of his as Peter being an eyewitness. And so, if you will, Mark is really Peter's gospel. John was one of the first four of the original 12. We actually covered his uh, calling because when we talked about the book Follow Me last week, Peter, Andrew, James, and John were the first four of the 12 disciples called. So he was an eyewitness from the beginning. And the fifth, the fifth eyewitness, the fifth disciple called, was a guy named Levi, at least according to Luke's version. John takes us into Philip and Nathaniel and so forth, and we don't know the chronology exactly. But Levi becomes Matthew, and he was a witness from the beginning. James was our, the Lord's brother. Jude was the Lord's brother. And these are the writers of the New Testament. So all the writers of the New Testament saw Jesus risen from the dead. They knew Jesus before his, you know, his death, burial, and resurrection, with the possible exception of Paul, but he would have known of Jesus. Uh, and they, uh, they had understood the concepts here in Luke 24, and they had spent a lifetime rethinking the whole Old Testament from the point of view 
of how do we see Jesus in every point of it, using the way Jesus taught them as a principle. And so what you actually have to do is when you're reading the New Testament, uh, this is why I would highly recommend some of Tom Kelby's books to you, because he does this very well. Uh, he, he takes line by line through the New Testament and shows you where those lines came from in the Old Testament. And that's actually what I'm about to do for the rest of this message is my introduction to the Psalms. And because I spent that long developing it, I might even do it next week. We'll see. Uh, I probably could use about 90 minutes to do this. But uh, it took me about 18 hours to cut and paste all these. Uh, and guess what? I ran out. I normally have a rule that I only use as many materials I can put on front and back of both pages. So if I don't get through it all, it's there, all the scriptures are there and you can finish it yourself. I, I did what I could on four pages with 12-point with print. And guess what? I only did about 75% of the New Testament quotes from the, from the book of Psalms. I couldn't fit them all in on four pages. So there's still about 30 more. If you care to find them. I can show you a few websites where you can cheat. <laughs> and that'll speed up your process. Okay, so let's go through some of these just so we can see how they did it. Um, so the rest, the rest of page one, two, three, and four are, are, are quotes from the New Testament. And in each case, I'm telling you where they took that from in the Psalms. That's what we're going to do for the remaining 20 minutes we have. So let's get into it. Uh, in most cases, I try to stay to quotes. Sometimes they're allusions. And uh, we're going to talk uh, probably either next week or the, probably the next week after that about word pictures or imagery. But the Bible speaks in word pictures. And so uh, in some cases, they're using word pictures from the Psalms to uh, illustrate things about Jesus and the church and so forth. So Jesus taught in the temple, how can they uh, the Christ, say the Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit, in other words, by inspiration, uh, says the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. Uh, that's from the ESV. And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him as the ending in the NASB thing. And they, they're basically the same ver in, on those verses except the ending. Now, the above and the quote below are both from Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is the most often quoted psalm in the New Testament. You know, the one that starts, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make thy enemies a footstool for the, thy feet, and so forth. Now, I've listed there near the note, we're not going to go through them all, but I've listed 19 times that I could find, and I was in a hurry. I, you know, uh, cut and pasting and formatting, and, you know, I'm kind of slow, hunt and peck typer, and I worked steadily from about five in the afternoon till seven this morning, about 14 hours uh, to get all these in. So uh, that, that's, I'm not saying there's not more than 19, in other words, but there's 19 that I could find, and I'm not the brightest guy. 
So there might be more. 19 times, and uh, if you notice, they're from the Gospels, they're from Paul's epistles, uh, they're from Hebrews, and they're from Peter. And there's a pattern there. We're going to see uh, where these quotes come from are all four Gospels, the book of Acts, so all five of the historical books, all of Paul's epistles, Peter's epistles, uh, John's Gospel, and John and Revelation. However, there aren't quotes from the Psalms in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, James, or Jude. However, both James and Jude quote extensively from the Old Testament, just not from the Psalms. Acts 2, 29 through 35, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. He's talking, this is in the day of Pentecost speech, so he's talking about the 120 people who uh, the Holy Spirit descended on them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They began to speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. All 100 of these 20, 120 of these people were witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They were among the 500 people that Paul says witnessed Jesus after, you know, got, saw Jesus after his resurrection. Uh, and then it says, uh, be, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, which is also from Psalm 110, and having received from the promise, Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out uh, this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, which again is Psalm 110, verse 1. Acts 4, 24 through 27 says, And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth, you might remember this is the prayer meeting they're having after Peter was arrested and they were praying, praying uh, fervently for Peter. And I, I think if you read it, it's a very funny story because Peter is so worried about the fact that he's going to be executed the next day that he's, so, that he's asleep. That's what he, I don't know how you'd be if you were going to be executed the next day, but Peter's so worried about it that he's so asleep that when the angel comes and hits him in the side uh, and then uh, walks him out, they get all the way outside the gate before he wakes up and now have to go, oh, this is really happening. I'm really awake. I thought this was a dream. I, the, he was, that's pretty deep sleep. <laughs> I guess he wasn't that worried. Uh, Jesus said not to worry when these things happen, so I guess he was taking it quite literally. Um, so, uh, and then, of course, uh, uh, Jesus said, knock and keep knocking. So Peter, good listener, Peter. So he goes to, uh, to the, the prayer meeting is actually at John Mark's mother's house. We know that from another, other sources. But it's at John Mark's mother's house, and all these uh, uh, Christian disciples are praying, probably hundreds of them. She was wealthy, and they were meeting at her house because it was big. And uh, there's probably a few hundred people in this prayer meeting. And the servant girl, Rhoda, I think is her name, goes to the door. And when Peter knocks, uh, she doesn't believe it's Peter. <laughs> and so she uh, doesn't let him in. And then it's so, I, I like it, it says, but Peter kept knocking. <laughs> Jesus said, knock and keep knocking. And it will be open to you. So anyway, this is, this is the prayer meeting at that, at, after Peter joins them. 
They lift up their voice and they say, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Those are all Old Testament concepts. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. So again, they're saying that David is speaking in inerrant, inspired words from the Holy Spirit in the Psalms. And they quote, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers are gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your Holy One see corruption. Now, anointed is traditionally rendered Christ, as you can see in thing, translations like New American Standard, Wycliffe. That's why I put Wycliffe, because when you say traditionally rendered, you start with Wycliffe always, because it was the first English translation, and the King James and, and the Geneva Bible and so forth were based off of it. So if you want to see what, how the uh, passage has been traditionally translated in English, start with Wycliffe and move chronologically forward. Uh, so I did that a little bit here, although I always stick the NASB up front. Uh, Wycliffe, King James, New King James, Young's Literal, and all the way to modern ones like New English Translation use Christ. Occasionally, some translations use Messiah, Holman Christian Standard, King, uh, um, the Complete Jewish Bible, Mounts, etc. Um, the quotes in Acts 4, 25, 26 above are from Psalm 2, verse 2 and 3. Now, just for a preview... Next week, I'm, I'm hoping to get into what I actually plan to get into this week, but then I just couldn't avoid the temptation of doing, showing you. Because the reason I'm doing this with all the Psalms is partially this. People come to me all the time, and I, I love when people are honest. And they say, you know, for two or three years, I would listen to your messages thinking you're really overstating things, and you're really exaggerating, and it's, you use too much hyperbole, and it's just not that big a deal. So we say all the time that you can't understand the New Testament unless you know the Old Testament because the writers of the New Testament are actually using the Old Testament in virtually every sentence and paragraph. And all we're doing today is the Psalms, and I, and I couldn't fit them all on four pages. So if you think, I, I'm actually just, I want to cure you if you think that when we do this thing about the apostolic hermeneutic and that they are t teaching us about Jesus and his church and God's purposes in the kingdom by using the Old Testament, we're not exaggerating how much they do that. That's why I did this, decided to do this message, uh, even though it was it really, it's not intellectually challenging, it was a little tedious for time, how it's got impatient and stuff, but it was about as easy an assignment as you can get. It's not, not particularly that insightful, but, it, uh, but I think it hopefully shows us a pattern that the key to understanding the New Testament is to really know a lot about the Old Testament. So, uh, the quote in Acts 4.27 above is from Psalm 16.10, the one where it says, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. And Psalm 16.10 is also quoted frequently in the New Testament. Moving on, I'm purposely, by the way, if you, you're going to notice, I'm going, I'm, I'm bouncing all over the New Testament and, and think in terms of sections. Think in terms of the synoptic gospels, 
John and Revelation, think of those two as a section. Matthew, Mark, and Luke as a, as a section. All of Paul's epistles as a section. Peter as a section. The, again, the only ones who don't do, use the Psalms a lot are James and Jude, who, who quote extensively from the Old Testament. Every other writer of the New Testament uses the Psalms a lot, including whoever is the writer of Hebrews, as we're going to see. Psalm 4. I got to get to where there's no Oh, I'm in trouble. Um, now what we need is a clock that I can just make go backward. <laughs> <laughs> Twilight Zone. Romans 4. Uh, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted. Uh, that's ESV. Credited is New American Standard. Reckoned is, is New King James. As righteousness. Uh, and I put all three words so you think about the word. It's an accounting thing. God is taking away your unrighteousness and he's making an accounting change. He's taking away a debit and he's making it an asset. He's giving you righteousness by faith. It's an, it's, uh, the, the scripture actually uses accounting terms. Just as did, so all you bean counters out there, the, here's to you. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of, to, of the one who counts or credits or reckons righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count as sin. Now, hopefully you know that verse 7 and 8 are from Psalm 32. And here's a little preview. One of the, we're going to look at various types of psalms, like psalms of um, kingship. We're going to look at laments uh, and so forth. In weeks to come, we're going to look at the uh, imprecatory psalms. This is a type of psalm called the penitential psalms. There are seven penitential psalms. Uh, St. Augustine was very big in the penitential psalms where uh, we might end up having one more week because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a whole lot of quotes from people like Luther and Augustine and other Christians who are going to do a whole message just on quotes from other Christians about the psalms. And St. Augustine, I'll tip, tip my hat right at, tip my hand Ahead of time, you're going to get a lot from Augustine and Luther. Um, but Augustine loved the, the Psalms, but especially the penitential Psalms. And it's said actually that this Psalm, Psalms 32 and 51, are the two most well-known of the seven penitential Psalms. And it's said that Augustine, when he was dying, uh, arranged... Uh, for his helpers to put his chair in a corner, face, uh, facing the corner, and he just prayed the penitential psalms over and over again as he wept before the Lord and, and confessed his sins and pre prepared to meet Christ because he was so convinced that, and, and we're talking a champion of justification by faith, by the way, uh, he was so convinced of, of the supreme holiness of God. Anyway, so they, uh, Psalm thir that, that particular quote of Paul's is from Psalm 32, verses 2 and 3. One of my favorites, how blessed is the man whose sin is forgiven. I kind of needed that one a lot. All right, again, the apostolic hermeneutic is correct and Christocentric. Page 2. <laughs> uh, I need a button. 
Pop a button in my mouth. Uh, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, or again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he brings the firstborn into the world, and let, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. Now, that's Psalm 2, 7, Psalm 97, 7, and it's also from 2 Samuel 7, 14. Now, I kind of did some little sections once in a while, so if you notice, the first half of this whole page is all from Hebrews. So it's because I'm trying to do major sections of the New Testament. So Hebrews is, in some ways, you could argue for it being up there with Matthew and the, all the Gospels and Acts and Romans and Hebrews. Is, you know, it's hard to say what's the most important book, but Hebrews is super, super, super important because Hebrews gives us the apostolic community the most completely. Hebrews teaches us how to see Jesus in every chapter in a, um, from the Old Testament, uh, is what I'm saying. Uh, you might even consider going back. John did a whole series on Hebrews, which should be, if you scroll down in the, uh, what do they call it, Sermon of the Week, there's uh, Hebrews. But there, there's some, the first half of those, those are all quotes from Hebrews, uh, at that point, I, in some of these points, I switched to the New American Standard simply because it uses small caps, so it's a little bit easier to see what's a quote. Anything that's in small caps, because the ESV just uses uh, quotations when it's quoting from the Old Testament, and I, don't, I think that's easier to miss, especially for us old guy, people with poor eyes. Um, but whenever, so jump down there to Romans 3, Paul's great treatise on... The faith, in, in Romans 3, he's making his argument for the depravity and sinfulness of man. That is a major problem in the church today. A major, 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 major problem we're struggling with is people think they're basically good people. And we just need a little religion. We don't, like, don't, don't speak too long. Don't, you know, have a Bible study that's too long. Don't get too serious about this. You know, we, we want to keep it kind of lame. But the problem is simply this. Sin is, is a huge deal. That's why the Bible says, talks about the deceitfulness of sin. Believe me, I deal with two kinds of sin, mine and yours, <laughs> all the time. And I am so amazed, in both cases, at the deceitfulness of sin. Sometimes just getting someone to see their sin is a, like an hour conversation. And I have to use every giftedness God has ever given me to try to open their eyes to something that should be Super easy and clear to see, but it's just that sin is incredibly sinful. It's in, and I don't like using the word incredibly normally, but I would actually say it's a good usage there. And you know, incredibly means with you know without incredulous, not not with faith. It's incredibly, it's beyond belief. It's it's hard to believe how sinful our sin is. And what Paul is doing in Romans three probably is he's sharpening his sword as sharp as he knows how with all his great oratory gifts. 
in his grips of Scripture, and he's quoting one line of the Old Testament after another to try to get us to see you're not okay. Your your need rescued. And the, the level you need rescued on is way bigger than you think. And therefore, Romans 3, 9 through 18, that's what he's doing. And every line, I have them, I kind of put the, uh, in the poem style, I put the, the verses to the left and over to the right, I put where they're from in the songs. Now, I'm out of time, so we're going to stop there. I, I don't know if I'll get into this again uh, another, another week or just let you do it on your own. But all you have to do is read the scriptures. You can compare translations if you want to go a little deeper, like compare the ESV to the NASB or whatever. Uh, and then compare the Psalms that I've listed. But in this case, I haven't, I've just listed the reference to the Psalm. You might want to take the time to actually look the Psalm up and start getting a feel. One of the things you'll find is that sometimes it's a little tricky how they quote the Old Testament. And the reason for that is because both Jesus and the apostolic writers quote from both the Hebrew Masoretic scriptures and from the Greek Septuagint, and they don't make any distinctions between the two. They treat both of them as inerrant authority. And so sometimes you kind of have to look at it a little bit and go, well, I, it doesn't seem like it came over as an exact, uh, an exact quote, but I see that it, it, it really is. So do some work on that, and I'm, I promise you it'll yield good rewards to you. And we'll see you all back here in five minutes.